0: the presentation of the rose, graceful waltzes, and arias and trios filled with love, longing, and heartache. Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier stands apart as a culminating masterpiece of the late Romantic era. I'm Naomi Barratera. This is the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.
1: The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org.
0: Der Rosenkavalier, Richard Strauss's most popular stage work, was first performed in Dresden in 1911 and has come to hold a special place in the repertoire. Our lecturer for today's episode, Brian Ziegler, explores the work in its historical context, examining Strauss's use of the waltz, as well as aspects of the music and the drama that have kept this masterpiece on stage for more than a century.
2: In 1909, Richard Strauss, fresh from the successes of Salome and Elektra, was looking to get as far away from their blood-stained canvases as he could. He wanted to work again with Elektra's brilliant librettist, Hugo von Hofmannsthal. Various projects were proposed, some were drafted, but none of the first ideas caught fire. Hofmannsthal wrote a script about Casanova, which eventually saw the light of day as a play, not an opera libretto. Strauss had been encouraging his librettist to write a work based on the Babylonian princess Semiramis, an idea that never got off the ground. Even if it had been written, it certainly would not have had the lightness Strauss was seeking when, after the premiere of Electra, he was heard to say, next time I shall write a Mozart opera. Strauss had a lifelong love of Mozart, conducting his opera scores frequently throughout his career. When we read the correspondence between Strauss and Hofmannsthal, it's striking how often Mozart's works, particularly The Marriage of Figaro, are referred to. Hofmannsthal clearly admired Lorenzo da Ponte's libretti, with their combination of comic verve with rounded and sympathetic characters. His astute remarks about Beaumarchais, da Ponte's source, reveal that it was a short step for him to begin looking for a comic vehicle that could bring to life again the 18th century world of Beaumarchais' Figaro, Cherubino, and the Countess. Hofmannsthal's visit to his friend, Count Henry von Kessler, in February 1909 did the trick. Kessler suggested that the playwright look at a number of French sources, to provide the comic intrigue Strauss was seeking. Two plays of Molière provided inspiration, Les Fouvries de Scapin and Monsieur de Poursoniac. Other ideas came from a novel by Molière's contemporary, Louvet de Couvray. Hofmannsthal was immediately inspired, writing to Strauss, I have, during three peaceful afternoons, worked out a complete and entirely new scenario for a grand opera with downright comic figures and situations and action as colorful and almost as obvious as a pantomime. Much of what we now know as Rosenkavalier was already present in Hoffmannsthal's sketch. There was already a young ingenue named Sophie, a lecherous old man come from the provinces to marry, the prototype of Baron Ox, and an early version of Octavian in Hoffmannsthal's words, a young and graceful girl dressed up as a man, of the type of a farrar or merry garden. There is a marquise, who seems in the sketch to be a less important character but who eventually becomes the central character of the opera, the Marschallin. Almost immediately Hofmannsthal made the crucial decision to transport the action to the Vienna of Empress Maria Theresa in the middle of the 18th century. Strauss and Hofmannsthal met soon after and decided to go ahead full steam with the new project. Hofmannsthal sent Strauss great chunks of libretto at a time. He even thought ahead to the length of the whole work, estimating two and a half hours, roughly half the length of Die Meistersinger. Like Wagner, Strauss's projects had a way of ballooning their initial dimensions, and as with Meistersinger, the project ended up being of epic proportions and surprising depth. The writing of Act I proceeded smoothly and quickly. Act Two proved to be more difficult. Strauss requested massive rewrites of the last third of the act, even going so far as to supply his own detailed scenario of the action. Strauss knew that this was taking a risk with a writer of Hofmannsthal's stature and wrote placatingly in July 1909, Please don't be angry with me for thus putting the spurs on your pegasus, but the opera must be first-rate and, as I've said, the second act isn't up to what I expect of you or what you're capable of. Hofmannsthal followed Strauss's suggestions closely, and what we now know is the dramatic shape of the second act is as much the composer's invention as the librettist's. It's a great tribute to Hofmannsthal's professionalism, as well as Strauss's theatrical savvy, that Hofmannsthal soon wrote the composer. I see that it is all far more theatrical and much better than in the earlier version. I hope that you are now pleased with Act II, because you mostly have yourself to thank. This one experience has taught me a fundamental lesson in writing dramatically, which I shall not forget. Act three went somewhat smoother, though the collaborators suffered some disagreements over the final section. It was in the composition of this act that the character of the Marshallin took on the weight and seriousness that we now associate with her. In June, Hoffmannsthal objected to any shortening of the last act because it could not be any shorter without taking away from the significance of the Marshalin's character. She is the central figure for the public, for the women above all, the figure with whom they feel and move. Strauss nevertheless had to fight to keep the long lyrical section which closes the opera intact. Writing to Hofmannsthal, he asserted, You cannot judge just what the musical effect of the ending will be. That it is feeble when it is read aloud is clear. But you can leave it to me with a quiet mind to know how it is just towards the end that a musician, when something special has occurred to him, can get his best and loftiest inspiration. Indeed, the final trio is for many listeners the apex of the whole opera. Strauss completed the score in September 1910, an amazingly short period for such a massive work, for Hoffmannsthal's estimate of a two-and-a-half-hour running time was way under the mark. The Dresden premiere in January 1911 was an enormous success, the greatest reception of a new Strauss opera up to that time. Some of this was due to the uncredited help of the great German stage director, Max Reinhardt, who helped the singers bring dramatic shape and nuance to the work. It is a credit to the international popularity of the work that when, in 1945, Strauss greeted the American troops which were liberating Austria, he announced himself in English as Richard Strauss, the composer of the Rosenkavalier. Before the Act One curtain rises, we are treated to a brief symphonic tone poem. Strauss had already conquered the symphonic world with his colorful tone poems in which a scenario is embodied in orchestral sound stimulating the audience to imagine the scenes depicted without the help of verbal cues or stage business. This ability to make the drama come alive through the orchestra alone accounts for much of Rosenkavalier's atmosphere and energy. The brief prelude is a perfect example. It opens with a vigorous motif in the horns, followed by an excited falling phrase in the high strings. In this performance, we hear the Dresden Staatskapelle, conducted by Bernard Haitink. (laughs) ¶¶ The first motif will be associated throughout the work with the Count Octavian, a seventeen-year-old nobleman whom we discover when the curtain rises in the arms of his married lover, the Marshallin. The second motif is one of many which Strauss uses to depict her complex and changing character. Her husband, the Feldmarschall, is on a hunting trip. We soon learn that this is not the first time his excursions have left his wife alone in Vienna. Even though the libretto makes frequent mention of the difference in age between the two lovers, Strauss later wrote that the Marshalin is still a young woman of 32 who has had lovers before and will have them again. Once the passions of the two lovers are exhausted, the music begins to calm down and the oboe plays another of the lovely motifs that will follow the marshalin throughout the opera. An even more languorous motif follows in the strings. When the curtain rises, we are in the Marshalin's sumptuously appointed bedroom. It is early morning. Before we hear the first words of the opera, in which Octavian sings about the Marshalin's charms, a quick aside about a peculiar operatic convention. Frequent opera-goers are accustomed to the practice of a female singer, usually a mezzo-soprano, performing the role of a young man. The best-known example of this is Cherubino, the young page in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, who served in some ways as a model for Octavian. Other examples in the standard literature include Siebel in Faust and Niklaus in The Tales of Hoffmann, but although both these characters are young and passionate, neither present their directors and performers with the challenge of the curtain rising on two lovers in bed. Octavian, here sung by An sophie von Otter, rhapsodizes in his opening aria with a hymn of praise to the Marshalin's qualities, No one knows, no one imagines what you are really like. The Marshalin's playful response immediately demonstrates Hofmannsthal's deftness in characterizing the more experienced lover. She asks, Are you complaining about that? Would you wish that many knew me this way? We see at once the great difference in their experience and knowledge of the world. Octavian's ardor eventually ebbs into a more expansive mood, which the Marshalin answers, saying, You are my darling, I love you. Our Marshalin is Kiri Takanoa. In these two distinct phrases of the Marshallin, we already hear the ingredients of a complex character. In the first, playful and worldly-wise. In the second, tender and loving. But the lover's paradise is soon invaded. Octavian rails against the coming of day, demanding that the sun stay its course, as have lovers dating back to Romeo and Tristan. A more banal introduction comes in the form of the Marshallin's servant, Mohammed, a little black page who delivers breakfast, and whose sprightly music will furnish a comic ending to the entire opera. The marshalin Gently reminds Octavian that the everyday realities of life must be respected. In what would otherwise be a throwaway line, she sings a line that will have great resonance in the course of the opera. Jedes ding hat seine Zeit. Each thing has its own time. The waltz we hear played in the clarinet is the first of many in the opera. Like Johann Strauss's Die Fledermaus, Rosenkavalier is famous for its waltzes, though ironically their presence in the score is problematic. Remember that the action is set around the middle of the 18th century. Strauss often evokes this period musically with deft pastiches of Mozartian style. But in fact, the waltz did not become popular in Vienna until the early 19th century. This waltz is scored lightly for solo wind instruments, providing an intimate, informal feel in contrast with the heaven-storming bombast of the opera's opening. This is an example of Strauss's mastery of orchestral design. The opera is scored for enormous forces, but it also contains some of the most intimate, transparent scoring in the operatic literature. The lover's romantic breakfast is interrupted by a man's voice outside the room. The Marshalin is terrified that her husband is unexpectedly returned. Frantically, Octavian hides behind a curtain until the Marshalin realizes from his voice that the intruder is not the Feldmarschall, but her country cousin, the Baron Ox. Octavian emerges from hiding in a maid's skirt and cap. For those who are keeping score, we now have a mezzo-soprano impersonating a man, impersonating a woman. The Marshalin is delighted by this silly disguise, but when Ox enters, complications ensue. The Baron is a lecherous country squire who is not used to taking no for an answer the pretty servant girl whom the marshalin quickly christens Mariandel, is firmly in the Baron's sights. He has come to Vienna to complete an arranged marriage with the fifteen-year-old daughter of the wealthy Herr von Faninal, a nouveau riche social climber who is happy to trade his daughter and a massive dowry for the Baron's aristocratic title. We hear a new kind of music when Ox enters, pompous, self-satisfied, and completely confined to the bass register. Our Ox is Kurt Riedel. The Marshalin quickly recognizes her distant cousin as an uncouth opportunist with absolutely no regard for his prospective wife's point of view. She is the means to a large fortune and no impediment to his pursuit of any servant girl who happens to be handy, as we see from his coarse advances to Octavian disguised as Mariandel. Ox details his tireless pursuit of country girls in a long aria which combines the appetites of a Falstaff with the numerical excess of Leporello's catalogue aria. The Baron needs the Marshalin's help for an important task. He requires an emissary to present a silver rose to his intended bride in a formal ceremony which many take to have been an 18th century Viennese custom but was in fact a picturesque invention of Hofmannsthal's. The Marshalin playfully suggests Octavian as the rose-bearer, slyly showing Ox his miniature portrait, leaving the Baron to marvel at its resemblance to the young servant-girl standing before him. The Marshalon would like to be free of her tiresome guest, and orders her major domo to admit the crowds who have been waiting in her antechamber. They include her hairdresser, a notary, a flutist and singer, and a crowd of orphans who plea for her patronage. All these together make her morning levee a chaotic affair, and afford the composer his first big ensemble. Some important plot elements are introduced here. Among the noisy crowd are Valzacchi and Anina, two Italian intriguers who are happy to assist any interested parties willing to pay them for their services. The inclusion of a flutist and an operatic tenor also gives Strauss a free hand to compose some delightful 18th century pastiche. The tenor aria, which follows is a delicious homage to 18th century vocal style sung in Italian and sporting a virtuoso high C among its charms. Tenor Richard Leach sings here. When the tenor repeats his aria a half-tone higher, he is accompanied by the aggressive Baron Ox's haggling with the notary over the terms of his marriage settlement. The Baron demonstrates that his greedy, aggressive nature applies to financial matters as well as his treatment of women. The Marshalin quickly disperses the crowd, after a poignant moment in which she accuses her hairdresser of having made her into an old woman. This brief moment of reflection foreshadows her great monologue which will close Act One, and which is, in many people's view, the highlight of the whole opera. This is the first time that we've seen the Marshalin alone. She is now free to express her disgust over Ox's exploitation of Faninal's young daughter. Hoffmannsthal's adroit sense of psychology leads her from one thought to another. The young Sophie reminds her of herself when she was sent straight from the cloister into a loveless marriage. Her memories of herself as little Rezi inspire a charming divertimento for winds which in its transparency and lightness bring the young woman back to life. We note the Marshalin's chagrin when she sings Commandeert, for indeed she, like Sophie, was commandeered into marriage. Thinking of herself as a young bride, the marshalin asks, Where is she now? and replies, Go seek the snow of years past. She imagines herself walking in the street being referred to as the old woman, the old marshalin. Strauss transforms the charming rhythm of the wind divertimento to a clumsy march which approaches Baron Ox's music in its four-square regularity. She reflects that the passing of time is a great mystery and that how one endures it makes all the difference. We see already the strength and wisdom which are at the heart of her character. Her reveries are interrupted by Octavian's return. He is full of passion and can only interpret her pensive mood as a rejection. When he wants to embrace her, she responds coolly, remarking that he who embraces too much in the end holds on to nothing. This leads her to a meditation on the slippery nature of time, which she feels flowing around her, through her, and between her and her young lover. She confides that she often gets up in the middle of the night to stop all the clocks. The clock strokes are sounded in the celesta and harp. The silence which follows is unearthly. This is the most private moment in the whole opera, a human being alone with her mortality. She recovers with the reflection that time also is a creation of God and must be accepted. From this introspective moment the scene builds through Octavian's inability to grasp the real heart of what the Marshalin is saying, that sooner or later, today or tomorrow, you will leave me for another woman. She asks him to leave so that she can go to church and visit her ailing Uncle Greifenklau. Perhaps later Octavian can join her for a carriage ride. As she tells him about this very ordinary day, the orchestra tells us that this moment is extremely poignant for her. She is seeing her life alone without him, and nostalgia and farewell flood the music. After Octavian leaves, she springs up, realizing that she has let him go without a kiss. When she inquires of her footman, she is told that he is already out of sight. She also realizes that he is left without the crucial silver rose and summons Mohammed to bring it to him. She settles back into a contemplative mood as she sings of the silver rose which Octavian will deliver. this silvery high note rings in the listener's ear as the curtain falls to end one of the tenderest scenes in all opera. From the most private moment in the opera, we are catapulted into the most public, the chaotic preparations in Faninal's house for the arrival of the Rosenkavalier. This is a good moment to notice the subtle and not-so-subtle class distinctions that Hofmannsthal is playing with throughout the opera. On one hand, we have the Marshalin, so-called because of her husband's military rank, but listed in the score, rather confusingly, as the Princess von Werdenberg, She is a real aristocrat, with the accompanying duties and flocks of servants and hangers-on, as we have seen in her Act I levé. Octavian is also referred to as Count Rofrano, being the second brother of the current Marquis. Baron Ox is extremely proud of his own title, promising to deliver to his young bride a lock of the hair of the first Baron Lerchenau, along with a true copy of his pedigree. On the other hand, we have the Faninal family, who have made a fortune supplying the army and even recently received a title for it. But Baron Ox soon makes it clear that their great, if recent, wealth is their main attraction, particularly since, as the Baron boorishly points out, the father's health is not good. These class distinctions take on new permutations later on, when Ox reveals that the servant that is accompanying him is his illegitimate child, and readily jumps to the conclusion that Mariandel's fine features must be due to a similar indiscretion in the Rofrano family. Throughout the entire work, Hofmannsthal ridicules Ox for his brutish and unwarranted sense of superiority while highlighting the marshalin's fine sense of fairness. The splendid public rooms of Faninal's palace are decked out for the arrival of the rose-bearer, who, as the representative of Baron Ox, is performing a kind of ceremonial initiation into the titled world for the excited and bewildered Sophie. We hear and see the excitement of the occasion through her eyes. Only fifteen, she has just emerged from a cloister and refers to the upcoming ceremony in terms appropriate for a religious rite. In her first words, she sings of her solemn hour of trial. The soprano is Barbara Hendricks. Strauss is quite sparing in his use of the chorus in Rosenkavalier, but for the glorious moment of Octavian's arrival, he pulls out all the stops. His arrival is heralded by a splendid shift in tonality and a blaze of brass, to rival the climaxes in Strauss's Don Juan and Ein Heldenleben. Sophie and Octavian begin their duet haltingly, she from shyness and inexperience, and he in a movement from stiff formality to a growing acknowledgement of her beauty. She sings of the magnificence of the silver rose in this stratospheric phrase. This duet is often called the presentation of the rose, and is one of the few excerptable moments in the whole opera, providing a coloratura soprano and a high mezzo with a glorious opportunity to blend their voices. Octavian and Sophie now join in a more private duet, though still under the supervision of her duenna, who is at first too awestruck by Octavian's noble trappings to suspect that he may come to represent to Sophie more than an emissary. Sophie has been doing her reading. She unguardedly confesses that she not only knows all of Octavian's Christian names, of which he has six, but also his pet name, Cancan. She is eager to appear knowledgeable, but in every utterance gives away her complete naivete. At the duet's climax, her soaring phrases again express her wonder as she admits to Octavian that even at a distance I have never seen a young man that pleases me as much as you. Her first meeting with Ox certainly brings her back to earth. She asks, does he think he is a horse-dealer who has bought me? At the same time that he is driving a hard bargain with Faninal for the marriage contract, he misses no opportunity to fondle the maids and brag about his sexual exploits. Here's a little sample of the many pages of music which accompany Ox's machinations. We hear his brutishness, his clumsiness, but also his sense of gusto, an unstoppable life force that reminds us that one of his musical models in Strauss's mind was Verdi's Falstaff. If we couldn't have even this limited appreciation of Ox, the drama would be too one-sided. Productions which portray him as a total monster risk a kind of melodrama which the elegant Hoffmann style could not have intended. For, in fact, Strauss is about to lavish the best-known melody in the whole opera on the boorish baron. Neither the refined Marcelin nor the nubile Sophie are granted this sugary, utterly memorable waltz tune. This tune becomes Ox's favorite. He returns to it each time his romantic prospects brighten, for, indeed, it is connected with his favorite subject, his own sexual prowess. He sings, With me no room is too small, no night is too long. It's ironic that this marvelous tune to which Strauss gave pride of place when, many years later, he arranged Rosenkavalier as an orchestral suite, is actually cribbed from a real Viennese waltz by Johann Strauss called Dinamiden. Throughout his entire career, Strauss borrowed freely from himself and sometimes from others, but his peerless technique was such that each borrowing seems to belong exactly in its new location. When the Baron briefly leaves the stage with Faninal to attend to the necessary paperwork, Octavian and Sophie hastily declare their love for one another. They are briefly afforded a moment of privacy because the Baron's drunken servants have been raising hell. In the introduction to their next duet, we again hear Strauss's deft orchestral lyricism setting the stage for the singing voice. <laughs> As in the presentation of the rose, their voices entwine so that they are almost indistinguishable. Most of this duet is sung quietly, for though the lovers feel passionately, Hofmannsthal had a clear idea of the musical treatment. He wrote, This duet might provide the requisite occasion for swelling and poignant as well as tender music. What I wish to avoid at all cost is to see these two young creatures, who have nothing of the Valkyries or Tristan about them, bursting into a Wagnerian kind of erotic screaming. Sophie is asked for Octavian's help in extricating herself from the marriage with Ox. Their rapture is interrupted by Anina and Valtzaki, who have been creeping up on them and reveal their embarrassing embrace to everyone. Again, we are immediately hurdled from fairy tale romance... To a masculine world where Ox congratulates Octavian, you may be only 17, but you know how to take advantage of a situation. Octavian is outraged by Ox's assumptions and tries to explain to the thick-headed fiancé that as far as Sophie is concerned, the marriage is off. Tensions mount and lead to Octavian accidentally wounding the Baron in the arm. All hell breaks loose, and we quickly learn that though the Baron talks a good game, he goes weak-kneed at the sight of blood flowing particularly his own. When Faninal returns, he is horrified to see his prospective son-in-law nursing a wounded arm, and his daughter clearly set against the advantageous match. Following the raucous music of the duel, Faninal's slow burn provides the low point, which a fine comedian can use to build himself up into a lather of indignation. Octavian storms off, Sophie is led away, and Farnial is trying to salvage what's left of Sophie's matrimonial prospects. Ox is understandably angry that his rose should be running off with his bride. Strauss rewrites his music in a minor key, where it takes on the seriousness of a death march in a Mahler symphony. Peace. His spirits are quickly revived when Anina returns with a message from Mariandel, promising an assignation the very next night. Of course, this is the beginning of Octavian's revenge, but Ox is no more aware of this than Falstaff is when he receives the message from Dame Quickly that his love letters have been answered. Like Falstaff, the Baron's self satisfied fantasies are wonderfully comic. Late in his life Strauss took pains to emphasize the Baron's positive characteristics clearly in reaction to some of the more grotesque portrayals of the provincial baron. The composer writes, Most bases have presented him as a disgusting, vulgar monster with a repellent mask and proletarian manners. This is quite wrong. Ox must be a rustic beau of 35, who is, after all, a member of the gentry, if somewhat countrified. He is at heart a cad, but outwardly still so presentable that Faninal does not refuse him at first sight. As we know, pride goes before a fall. In the midst of his triumph, the stingy baron has neglected to tip Anina for her services as a go-between. Hofmannsthal is wickedly setting the baron's traps in his neglect of this seemingly unimportant ambassador, for she will be part of his undoing in the next act. Act one ended with the philosophical musings of the marshalin. Act two ends with Ox's tipsy ruminations and a last reprise of the catchy waltz which may speak to us of Viennese elegance, but to the Baron sings the siren song of a last prenuptial fling. Kaufmann Stahl himself characterized the third act in broad strokes. It's a little spicy to begin with, then broadly comic, only to end on a note of tenderness. Not many librettists and composers could pull off this diverse mixture. The musical glue which holds everything together is the waltz. After the frantic orchestral gallop which opens the act, we are treated to a seemingly endless succession of waltzes which never flag in melodic interest. Even the time-suspending trio which provides the lyric apex of the whole opera is a slowed-down version of a waltz heard earlier in the act, though in Strauss's virtuosic transformation it is hardly recognizable as such. The scene is set for the Baron's final comeuppance. As in the last act of Verdi's Falstaff, the culprit is lured to a secret rendezvous in the hopes of finally attaining his erotic goals. Sometimes we feel some sympathy for the old fool as we do for Shakespeare's Malvolio because of the severity of his punishment. With Falstaff, we end up laughing with him because of his priceless ability to laugh at himself. Let's see how Baron Ox fares. Act three begins with a whirlwind orchestral introduction in which the trap is laid. Ox has hired a shabby inn for the scene of his tryst. In an elaborately detailed pantomime, Octavian enters, adopts his Mariandel costume, and hurries out. The orchestra is directed to play vivace possibile, as fast as possible, and indeed, this furiously difficult music separates the great orchestras and conductors from the merely competent. Amid the flurry of triplets, we clearly hear Octavian's motive, which began the opera. During this brief prelude, we see that the conspirators, including Anina and Valzacchi, have booby-trapped the room with phony picture frames and false windows, so that at crucial moments in his wooing of Mariandel, the Baron will be scared out of his wits by sudden apparitions. When the Baron enters with Mariandel on his arm, he immediately objects to too many candles being lit and an unnecessary hired band to provide a lover's serenade. Apparently, chambermaids don't warrant that kind of expense. Of course, the deck is already loaded, since the main trick that Octavian has up his sleeve is the mere fact of his own cross-dressing the same pretty face which attracts the baron to mariandel strikes terror into his heart when it appears to be octavian's face for after all this is the same hot-blooded youth who wounded the baron's arm just the day before the attempted seduction begins first mariandel refuses his offers of wine to a tune which we'll soon hear in a very different form as mariandel the mezzo-soprano is required to find a voice to suggest a young man imitating a young woman she also must speak with a thick, working-class patois which Hofmannsthal has transcribed. This also gives singers a field day by allowing them to bend the notes and to adopt a mixture of speech and singing which bears little resemblance to what Strauss put on the printed page. Anne-Sophie von Otter manages to create a vivid Mariandel partly because she honors Strauss's writing and manages to use his chromatic vocabulary and distinctive phrasing in service of the character. Mariandel uses the excuse of her drunkenness to become maudlin, thus completely defeating the baron's attempts to get her into bed. She sings, Time passes by, the wind blows, and soon we will vanish. We're only human. No one will weep for you or me. Next, the baron is set upon from all sides. Faces leer out of picture frames, ghosts loom up from the floor, and Anina enters in disguise, accusing Ox of having deserted her and her children. His dispossessed children clamor, the waiters demand payment, and Ox very unwisely calls for the police. Under the police officer's stern questioning, Ox makes the guilty man's mistake. He tumbles over himself with lies, identifying Mariandel as Fräulein Faninal, just at the moment the real faninal enters in a fury. It seems that no one can straighten out the mess until the deus ex machina appears in the person of the marshalin. This splendid music briefly returns us to the elevated world of the Marshalin and puts all the tawdry machinations of Ox and the conspirators in perspective. She has a brief exchange with the police officer, which lightly suggests in its indirection that the marshalin's extramarital love life did not begin with Octavian. The Baron in his self-centered way thanks the Marshalin for coming to rescue him. In fact, she is very plain about her mission which is to send Ox back to the provinces and bring the whole farce to an end. Ox tries in every way he can to save the arrangement with Faninal, and finally relents only when the Marshalin orders him to do so. She sums up the whole situation in a dismissive phrase, it's all a Viennese farce and nothing else. Sophie sadly repeats her words. After all, in the space of 36 hours, she has gone from being a fantasy-filled bride-to-be to a disoriented young woman who has defied her father and been threatened with a lifetime in the cloister. Ox bows before the Marshalin's command and, in the end, shows himself to be a better sport than we might have guessed. After quietly surmising that there is more going on with the Marshalin and Octavian than meets the eye, he remarks, "'I can't tell you how I'm charmed by such finesse. I find the whole affair delicious.' Strauss was right in his assessment. Ox is, after all, a member of the gentry, if somewhat countrified. He departs, taking with him a throng of conspirators and angry unpaid servants. The stage is set for the opera's dénouement. It suddenly seems very quiet, the hushed atmosphere shot through with unspoken tension. Octavian tentatively approaches Sophie, asking, Have you no friendly word for me? Sophie answers with nervous chatter. She understands that she is out of her depth. Again, as with Ox, the Marshalin has to intervene to set matters straight. She recalls the tune and the words she used in her duet with Octavian in the first act when she foretold, Today or tomorrow, you will leave me for another woman. Now the moment has come. She engages Sophie in a brief dialogue and patronizingly but with real understanding says, don't shatter too much, you're pretty enough as it is. And as for your pallor, I think your cousin there has the right medicine. For the last time in this masterful score, Strauss has brought the musical accompaniment down to a bare minimum to clear our ears and rest our emotions for the climax to come. Octavian is deeply touched by the Marshallin's kindness to Sophie and stammers, I don't know. The marshalin replies that she also doesn't know in halting, unaccompanied fragments that show us that this self-possessed woman, like the two young lovers, has been humbled by the mystery which envelops them all. This is the corresponding moment to that in the first act when the marshalin has stopped all the clocks to try to suspend time. This is exactly the effect that Strauss was looking for when he wrote Hofmannsthal. It would be nice if you could write a contemplative ensemble passage to follow the moment when some dramatic bomb has gone off, when the action is suspended and everybody is lost in contemplation. Such moments of repose are most important. The Marshalin begins a trio in which each of the characters express their astonishment at the new romantic alignment in which they find themselves. It begins with the Marshalin's ravishing solo line, a vastly expanded and slowed down version of the insipid waltz tune which accompanied Mariandel's failed seduction earlier in the act. The Marshalin's text reflects her unsentimental understanding of her position as she sings, I vowed that I would love him in the right way. The boy stands there and I here, while that girl will bring him such happiness as men are capable of understanding. Octavian sings of his bewilderment and newfound love for Sophie while she experiences a mixture of reverence for the Marshalin along with the interesting insight, I sense that as she gives him to me, she is also taking something away from me. The voices continue to blend and make their way from key to key as if exploring new emotional worlds with each change of tonality. The Marshallin has blessed the new pair in God's name and exits. The music begins in the noble, elevated D-flat major, which Strauss often reserved for his greatest lyrical climaxes. He then shifts to the simple, transparent G major, the same key in which the young lovers first exchanged small talk to the accompaniment of a childlike waltz. Now they sing an innocent tune, which sounds like an unadorned German folk song, filtered through the innocent eyes of Papageno and Papagena in Mozart's magic flute. Hoffmannsthal supplies a happy ending even for Faninal. The Marshalin has offered him a ride in her carriage, a social honour which more than makes up for the loss of Ox as a son-in-law. Gazing at the two lovers, Faninal remarks to the Marshalin, "The young will be young," and in a celebrated moment of the opera, she replies wistfully, "Ya-ya," after which she and Faninal exit. The lovers sing a variation on their duet, they kiss, and the distracted Sophie drops her handkerchief. Just before she and Octavian run off, arm in arm. Rather than ending the opera lyrically, Hofmannsthal has devised a comic bit of pantomime to end the piece on a lighter note. After the lovers have left, Mohammed, the Marshalin's tiny servant, scampers back in to retrieve the handkerchief. Finding it, he dashes off in triumph. In a sense, the Marshalin really has the last word. Having brought the lovers together by appointing Octavian to be the rose bearer in the first place, she is now tidying up after their final exit. Her dignity, her farsightedness, and her compassion have lifted this comedy from the burlesque to the transcendent. As Mohammed runs out, leaving the stage empty, this bittersweet comedy comes to a rollicking end.
0: That was Brian Zeger in a Talking About Opera lecture discussing Der Rosenkavalier. The Met's live in HD broadcast of Strauss's masterpiece is coming up on May 13, 2017. It features a beautiful new production by Robert Carson and the much-anticipated performances of Renee Fleming singing The Marshallin and Alina Garantza singing Octavian. It is a performance not to be missed, so look at your local listings for a movie theater hosting the broadcast in your area, or come see it live at The Met. Visit metopera.org. I'm Naomi Barratera.